you know, I, I told them, I feel like he's going to rerun 131 before he started, you know. Uh, people thought it was kind of creepy, you know. <laughs> but I feel like, you know, the Holy Spirit is working um, in that class at that moment where uh, people are just in awe. We feel like God is working at that time. So we kind of want to open today's sermon with that question for you. Have you experienced a moment like that before in your life? It's probably not in class, probably doing a short-term mission trip. You go to a place where um, the neighborhood is you know, socially marginalized, people are not as um, blessed, materialistically speaking, and yet in that place where uh, they don't have a lot, a lot of resources, people come together when they worship, you see how God moved their hearts. You know, people coming in wheelchairs, people who's been sick for the last uh, 10, 20 years, and yet there's that joy, that peace in that community. Or maybe it's doing a, a worship session where your emotions is being carried by the music. You know, by people around you where they're lifting their hands, people are dancing, people are moving their feet, and then, and then the music just totally speaks to your heart, and then you're just like, you're in awe. You feel like the Holy Spirit is moving everyone in the same room for a single purpose, to worship God. Or maybe it's a time when you, uh, when you share the gospel with a family or with a friend, you didn't know what to say, and yet there's just sentences after sentences of wonderful gospel message coming out of your mouth. And at that moment, you feel like these are not, not coming from me. You know, the Holy Spirit is moving my mouth. The Holy Spirit is move, moving my thoughts. I don't know this, where the stuff I'm sharing is coming from, but so good. <laughs> you feel like. Peter and Philip and Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts because those people just seem like they know exactly what to say given the circumstance and then you experience that in a moment like that we feel like we're the chess pieces and God is moving you and then you feel like God is the sponge he's absorbing the time and the place and the characters into a bigger story that he, he's uh, revealing. And then at that moment, there's only one thing you feel like doing. Okay? You can't slow down, take out your phone, and tweet about that moment. This is just going to totally break the momentum. And you can't run away because God has completely your attention. And then there's only one thing you feel like doing, and there's only one thing you can do. That is, you bow down and you worship. Last week, we uh, talked about the tabernacle. And we went through the details. We go through the altar, the tent, the holy place, and the most holy place. What each of that place means uh, as a symbol pointing to the gospel. You know, to me, studying the tabernacle is a moment like that. It's a moment for us to meet God and to be in awe of His presence. Because 
on the surface, it's a, it's a kind of dry and boring topic, um, a subject that doesn't seem to connect to us, you know, the modern Americans in the 21st century. And yet when we spend the time to dig deeper, we understand how the tabernacle is a heavenly entity. It's something that God already built before he laid the foundation of earth. This is something that already existed in heaven and yet he chose to replicate a copy on earth so that the, the ancient Israelites, so that the people have a glimpse of what heaven looks like, of what worship looks like in heaven. And the fact that the tabernacle on earth and the tabernacle in heaven both points to the gospel of Jesus Christ to the incarnation, sinless life, death, resurrection, and enthronement of our Savior. And just, it's just amazing how an object that doesn't seem to have anything to do with the life that we're living today is actually crucially relevant to the Gospel. And um, at that moment, you know, I experienced this yesterday as I uh, review um, the sermon for today. Yesterday, I experienced that moment. I was uh, preparing for the sermon at work. I was the only, only guy in the building. And then, when I realized how beautiful the whole thing works together, I slowed down and I worshipped. I walked around the building in the, um, in the office and I worshipped and I prayed and hopefully today as we go through Leviticus 16 that's something we can all experience too let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer Lord God we thank you for your word we thank you for every book every chapter every verse and every word and Father uh, we surrender you our, our minds and our hearts this morning. We pray that you come and take control of this sermon. That we would just be in awe of your mystery, of your beauty. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright. Um, hopefully you have some time to review uh, chapter 16 this week. Uh, before uh, we dig into 16, let's kind of read the entire, kind of just look at uh, the book of Le Leviticus from a 30,000 feet uh, um, perspective. Um, if you read through the book, you can kind of divide it up in three major sections. Okay? Chapters 1 to 15 deals primarily with uncleanness. For both the whole nation as well as the priest tribe of Levites. In chapters uh, 1 through 7, we kind of look at what the five different offerings are, uh, what the animals should we use to be sacrificed, who are going to perform those uh, um, rituals, and um, what each of those offerings mean. Okay, And then uh, in chapters 8 to 10, it deals primarily with the priesthood. And at the end of chapter 10, 
Actually, at the beginning of chapter 10, a tragedy happened. Both sons of Aaron died because they bring strange fire before God. Okay. And then um, in chapters 11 to 15, it deals with uh, what's ceremonially clean and what's not. If you're a seafood lover, you're probably having a hard time with uh, chapters 11 to 15. There's some, sea, so there's some seafood you can eat, but there are some uh, seafood that you can't eat. There's some animals you can eat, and some animals you can't. Some are clean, some are not, some are not clean. And it deals with um, you know, what we consider as a strange and kind of interesting topics. You know, uh, it talks about um, childbirth, leprosy, and uh, what one has to do to, uh, to be cleansed from that. And something very interesting in those chapters is, uh, you know, leprosy back then, there's no cure for leprosy, right? If you have it, you have it, and uh, you have it for life. And yet, embedding those chapters, God talks about what to do when someone is actually cured from leprosy. When God took things, uh, took the disease into his, into his own hands and decided to cleanse the person of leprosy, what are you supposed to do? And then uh, in chapter 16, um, it talks about where, um, uh, the, the, the subject of our sermon today, the Day of Atonement. Okay. What it takes to be holy. What it takes to be not just ceremonially clean, but also cleansed from sin. And what we learn from chapter 16, as we'll dig into later, is um, on the Day of Atonement, there's nothing you can do. If you take a bath on that day, you're supposed to take a bath on that day, but it doesn't make you clean. Something else has to die in our place. Something's blood has to be sprinkled in our place for us to be clean. And then, uh, <clears throat> and after that, after you're clean, after we're holy, chapter 17 to, to 27 talks about how to practice your holiness. So in short, first part of Leviticus deals with uncleanness. Chapter 16, which is the central focus of the book, talks about how something else, someone else has to die in our place for us to be clean. And then after chapter 16, what kind of life should we live now that we're holy? Now, a question for you. What does that sound like? You were unclean, you were unholy, something else has to die in your place for you to be clean. And then, from then on, 11 more chapters of how to live a holy and clean life. What does that sound like? The answer starts with a G. The Gospel, right? Doesn't that sound like the Gospel? Can I kind of see the first part of Leviticus? God is revealing Himself to an unbelieving world, right? The Father loves the world and the Son is sent for the world and the Holy Spirit convicts the heart of unbelieving person and the Trinity works together it's a group project to humble the world in the middle part chapter 16 
father elects the believers the son dies for them and the spirit baptizes the believers into the holy community the trinity labors together for our salvation and finally as we become holy the gospel doesn't stop there you know a lot of times we think the gospel is uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and the gospel meets our heart as we turn from an unbeliever to a disciple and no 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 the gospel is so much more than that the gospel speaks to a believer even after conversion in this whole book of the Bible there are 66 books in here right all 66 books are written by believers for believers find the book where it says guys you know why this book is written for the non-believers it's not written for you find one like that you're not gonna okay because every single book in here is for rebuking for training for living a righteous life the whole book is God breathed and it is the gospel and um, in the last part the father leads the father is worshipped the sun is ringing in the dominion and the spirit whispers in our ears and the trinity is worshipped by the whole believers so even in the book written 3500 years ago we see a glimpse we see a foreshadow of the gospel that happened 2000 years ago okay and that is the book of Leviticus now let's kind of zero in into today's chapter chapter 16 uh, let's why see what it looks like let's see how it uh, speaks to us okay uh, if you turn to a page 79 that's where uh, Leviticus 16 is it's mainly divided into um, uh, seven major sections but then again if you read the uh, different commentaries uh, you may have different outline this is just the outline that I come up with let's read the first two verses together on page 79 Leviticus chapter 16 the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord the Lord said to Moses tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die for I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover now something interesting here God is giving instruction to Aaron who is the high priest but God didn't talk to Aaron directly he talked to Moses about Aaron right and um, here, some, something um, very interesting here the most holy place as we see last week is the uh, behind the curtain in the temple okay the most holy place the high, only the high priest can go there no one else in the whole nation can go in there and the high priest can only go in there once a month once a year okay one day a year can only the high priest enter the most holy place okay. 
And how does that speak, how does that point to, uh, to the gospel 1,500 years later? Now, I'm going to read from Hebrew chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. The author of the book of Hebrew says, Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve as a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Jesus is better than Aaron, better than Moses. He's better than any of the high priests in the Old Testament. God spoke to Moses about Aaron, right? Even in that case, Aaron and Moses is set apart from the whole nation of Israel. Even though God spoke to Moses about Aaron, which shows, you know, Moses has a different space, a different position in the whole, in the whole nation. And yet, Moses doesn't get to enter the most holy place. Only Aaron could. And even when only Aaron could, he can't do it as he wishes. He can only do it once a year. Only after he's cleansed. Only after he sacrificed a sin offering for himself. But Jesus is so much better. Not only can he enter in and out at will, as a matter of fact, he sits on the mercy seat ruling the universe. Okay, and let's take a look at verses 3 to 5, see what we find there. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. Okay, now God is giving a specific, actually a summary of um, the requirements for Aaron. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic, the linen undergarment next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelites' community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and the ram for a burnt offering. So we got um, a bull and a ram for Aaron himself, and then two, two goats and the ram for the whole nation. So right here, it's a summary of the animals required and then um, a proper wardrobe for, uh, for the priest. Now usually, usually that's what Aaron wears, you know, the very um, 
nice, extravagant, glamorous um, garment that he has. But on the Day of Atonement, everything is white. The sign of humility that Aaron has to present himself before God. So how does that look forward to, uh, to the Gospel? Let's read you something from uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. And it reads, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of the creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. In the Old Testament times, people had to use animals. They had to use the blood of the animals. And they have to do it year over year. But Christ only had to do it once. Okay. And then uh, that is enough. Jesus is better than the sacrifice. In fact, he's better than the goats, the rams, and the bulls combined. Can you just imagine over the course of thousands of years how many animals were sacrificed? Today, we're looking at one day a year where uh, the Day of Atonement happens. The sacrifice actually happens on a daily basis. There are different types of offerings. After these thousands of animals, the, 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 the bulls, the rams, the doves, and was that enough? It wasn't. Not until Jesus came. And um, let's read down to uh, verses 6 to 10. Aaron is to offer the bowl for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. So they bring two goats before God. One is to be sacrificed. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. So two goats uh, for uh, the nation of Israel. One is going to die before God as a sacrifice. The other one will be sent into wilderness. Now, a couple questions. One is, why goats? and that the other animals. Have you guys been to a Happy Hollow in San Jose? It's like a little kids park and then they have a petting zoo uh, with uh, the, little, the little, I don't know, uh, the mini goats, right? So kids going there, they can uh, pet the goats. And then, before you even go there, right? I, I, when you're like even um, a mile away from the petting zoo, you, you know you're getting close. You know, because goats, they stink. They stink pretty bad. Okay? And I think it's the same way with sin. Sin stinks. Right? It stinks so bad that using goats as a symbol of how much it stinks. So much so that in this particular case, you, you, can't, you, you need more than one. You need two goats. 
One is you have to sacrifice, you have to offer and surrender your sins before God. And the other one is a symbol of scapegoat. The God has to die, it has to go into the wilderness and die there. Now, pointing to the, um, the Gospels, in John uh, chapter 1, verse 12, when um, John the Baptist see uh, Jesus, remember what he said? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sin of the world. Symbolizing that Christ is the scapegoat removing sin from this world. And in the same book, uh, John 3.16, the most famous verse in entire Christendom, God so loved the world that seems that he sent his only beloved son to die. In this case, Jesus became the goat that was sacrificed before God. So the two goats, the one that's going to be sacrificed and the one that ran into the wilderness, Jesus himself take the role of both of them. And then um, in verses 11 to 19, let's read that together. What I believe is the uh, central focal point of chapter 16. Aaron shall bring the bowl for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. And he is to slaughter the bowl for his own sin offering. Now before Aaron does anything, he has to atone for himself. Okay, the high priest has to be clean first. Chap- uh, verse twelve. He's to take censer full of burnt coals from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of finely ground, fragrant incense, and take them behind the curtain. He's to put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle the blood on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. Let's kind of picture that. He slaughtered the bull. He draws some blood from the bull. Now he's going to sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant onto the uh, mercy seat, the atonement cover. In verse 15, He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover in front of it. In this way he will make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever the sin have been. So starting with the most holy place, Aaron has to make atonement for himself, right? And guess what? Even in the most holy place, he has to make atonement for that place, for the Ark of the Covenant, a holy object that symbolizes God's presence, okay? An object where God dwells on top of. Okay, a, holy, a holy object that points to Christ. 1500 years later, Aaron has to make atonement for it. 
What does that mean? Having something that's symbolic isn't enough. Something that's symbolic can still be unclean because of the sin of the people. Uh, are we? Okay, verse 17. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes up. Having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Now, by this time, Aaron himself is somewhat clean. His household is somewhat clean. The most holy place in the tent, you know, are somewhat clean, right? Um, and then we read them, verses uh, 18 and 19. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. Okay. So the tent is clean, the most holy place is clean, that's not enough, right? There's still the uh, outer court, the sanctuary of the uh, tabernacle. Now, that place is not clean yet. Aaron has to make it clean, has to make atonement for it. Uh, he shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. Now, with all the blood, okay, sin is bloody, sin is violent. You can't cleanse without blood. And it has to be complete, starting with the high priest, Aaron himself. And that's not enough. He has to make atonement for himself and his household, who are not even in the tabernacle with him. And he has to atone for the most holy place, the holy place, the tent, the altar, and the people of Israelites. Every um, first Sunday of the month, at the end of the service, we take communion, right? And we take the cup and the bread. The cup symbolizes the blood of Christ. For the longest time, I didn't understand why the blood is required. Why the blood of an innocent person, of the innocent God, is required. In Leviticus, we see why. Everything has to be cleansed with the blood. You can't be unclean. Uh, you can't be clean. You can't be holy without being sprinkled by innocent blood. That's just the way it is. Sometimes you don't understand. That's just the way it is. But as we take communion every month, bearing this in mind, Year over year, the high priest has to sprinkle blood on the ark, in the tent, on the altar. Jesus did it once. And when we take communion, we always look back to that point where he sprinkled his blood on the entire planet, on the entire human race. In, um, in the book of Romans, Chapter 3, verses 25. 
Paul said, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. In the book of Hebrews, verse, uh, chapter 13, verses 11 to 12, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the, whole, the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. Salvation is not through anyone else. Jesus is the way, the life, and the truth. Without his blood, we can be cleansed. Okay, okay. and then we go back to uh, the book of Leviticus. In verses 20 to 22, uh, the scapegoat is sent to the wilderness and die there. And then, um, and then after that, in verses uh, 23 to 28, Aaron has to come back and clean things up. Let's kind of read, uh, take a look at verses 23 to 28 together. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place. And he is to lead them there. Now, the undergarment um, that Aaron is wearing, he goes into uh, the tent and put everything there. So now he's kind of um, not wearing anything. And then he comes out, uh, in verse 24, he comes out into the, um, um, into the sanctuary, into the, into the tabernacle, the courtyard, where, um, do we have a picture? Yeah, he comes out to the courtyard. In verse 24, he shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area and put on his regular garments, the one that looks nice. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. He shall also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. Now the act of uh, atonement uh, is done and um, Aaron's in the stage of cleaning things up from the day of atonement. And the sacrifice is complete for now until they meet again next year. Well, I already addressed this by looking forward to the gospel. Something that they do year over year is just not enough. You know, God gave us um, the Old Testament of everything symbolizing making an outlook to the gospel that wasn't enough. In the Old Testament, God revealed His character. God put all the, uh, the laws, the regulations in the Old Testament and that's not enough. And that's why Jesus has to come. Jesus has to come and die and shed his own blood for us. And um, wrapping up the book of uh, Leviticus from uh, chapter 29, uh, from verses 29 to 34. Finally, 
Okay, after talking about what the priest has to do, what animals has to die, now God talks about what the people of Israelite has to do. Okay, so this is the, the part where uh, the people read and people following the instruction there. Okay, are you guys ready for uh, to see what uh, the people have to do on the Day of Atonement? You guys ready? Drum roll, please. Start, uh, verse 31. It's a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourself. It is a lasting ordinance. It is a day of Sabbath rest. So the high priest is doing everything, and then there's someone else taking the, the scapegoat outside the camp and releasing it into the, uh, the wilderness. Meanwhile, millions of people in the nation of Israel, this is what you guys gotta do. <coughs> nothing. There's nothing you can do. It's a day of Sabbath. You stand there, you sit there, and you watch what God has to do to make you clean. But then, God went on and said, deny yourself. What does it mean to deny yourself on the Day of Atonement? This is what I think. Since there's nothing you can do, you're just sitting there. I think, and I believe, everything happens internally. Everything happens in your, in your heart. You can't work. Because for a lot of us, work defines us. We let our annual salary define us. We let the position that we hold in our company define us. We let how much projects we can do, uh, how successful we can execute that project defines us. On that day, on the Day of Atonement, that means nothing. On the Day of Atonement, we come before God because we're God's people. And on that day, on the Day of Atonement, I am not just a husband. I am not just a father. They don't define me. My family doesn't define me on that day. Who I am to God defines me on the Day of Atonement. Denying myself as an employee, as a husband, as a father. But define myself as God's child. And for a lot of us, we let our fame, our popularity, the number of our Facebook friends, the number of our uh, Twitter followers define us. We define ourselves by how big our bank account is. But on the Day of Atonement, none of those matter. None of of those will make us clean. On that day, we sit and we receive God's acts of atonement for us. Um, How does that look forward to today? Luke wrote in his gospel, chapter 9, verse 23, he said, This is what Jesus said to uh, his disciples. Then he said to them all, 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. After we're cleansed, after the atonement is done, after Jesus died, now we're holy, now we're disciples. And what do we do now? We don't have to live the day of atonement anymore, right? Does that mean we, deny, we don't have to deny ourselves anymore? No. Jesus said, deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow Him. I'm not asking you uh, not be a husband or wife, not be a father or mother, not be a good employee at work. But beyond that, first and foremost, we're disciples. We're a community of thought of faith in action. We are a family. We're the Father. God is our Father. Jesus is our brother. And the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the same family. Denying ourselves also means we have complete access to God and we should use that access. In Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 to 16, the author wrote, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. Just as we are, yet, we did, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of needs. Deny ourselves, deny our own strength, our own power. The, the, um, the tendency, the instinct to, uh, to help ourselves and be, come before God with confidence. In the book of, uh, well, in chapter 16, we see a foreshadow, we see a, a model, a type of Christ in the tabernacle, in the rituals, in the, uh, in the sacrifices, in the animals. Everything points to Christ. Everything points to Jesus. He is the tabernacle. He is the lamb, the goat, the ram, the bull, and he is the high priest. As a matter of fact, as we read on through the entire Bible, Jesus is so much more. So everything written in the Old Testament points to Christ. You know, points to who He is and what He has to do. And, 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 and as you read through the Old Testament, you can't help. But you're going to have a lot of questions, right? And I think one of the questions we all ask is if everything that happened in the Old Testament, if everything that God instituted in the Old Testament is a foreshadow of Jesus, is a symbol of Christ, why didn't He just send Jesus in Genesis chapter 1? Right? And we'll be done with it. Why did He take 15, uh, thousands of years 
for the stories to develop before he sent Jesus. Do you ever ask that question? Why Jesus came so late? Anyone with that question when you read the Old Testament? The disciples did. So they asked Jesus that very similar question, that type of question in Acts uh, chapter 1. And this is Jesus' answer. Ready for this? This is his answer. Why he came and why things happened and why God's timing happened that way. This is why he said, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has sent by his own authority. Oh, great, thanks, Jesus. It's not my business to ask. (laughs) We'll never find out. But I think there's another reason. As much as God wants to send his, his son, as much as Jesus wants to come and redeem the world, People are not ready yet. People are not ready yet. Everything that we know Jesus has, every idea, Son of God, King of Ages, the shelter, the high priest, the king, the prophets, the Alpha and the Omega, the Most High, every single one of those ideas take time to develop take time to, for us to absorb to and understand in a sense this is the same reason why we don't send a three year old to college we know eventually we hope they'll go to college and receive the education but they're not ready yet they don't have that skill they don't have that knowledge the information that they need to be successful at the college level. And it's the same reason why Emily and I won't let Hemi and Nico ride motorcycles until they are 25. I'll probably let them get a license, you know, as soon as they can, but they won't get to ride um, by themselves until they are 25. Because I want them to have that skill, to see, to have experience on the road, to have first-hand knowledge of the crazy California drivers to see the crazy traffic on the highways first before they experience the joy of motorcycling. And it's the same thing, I believe, for the timing of the coming of Christ. It's not for us to know. But meanwhile, it is for us to get ready for His coming. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 24, God said, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was put in charge of us until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. And then later on in chapter 4 he said, But when the set time had fully come, that's 2,000 years ago, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, and we might receive adoption to sonship. And families, that's where we're at today. 
the gospel takes time to develop. It's not until 2,000 years ago that it's the right time for Jesus to come. And I really don't know when Jesus is going to come again. Okay. It's not going to be May 18, 2012, as some predicts. I hope it's going to be tomorrow. I hope it's going to be this afternoon, actually. But I don't know. But meanwhile, it's for us to get ready. Because it's going to be a development for that to happen. And guys, this is why the gospel doesn't just happen when we become a believer from a, from a non-believer. This gospel, the story of the gospel is revealing today. And that is why we are going through the Holy Bible together as a community. You know, we can't fully grasp the magnitude and the power of the gospel unless we go in and devour the whole thing. And what I mean by devouring is we read it from cover to cover this year together and next year we come back we look at the questions that we have you know uh, the things that we missed as we read through the gospel this year we're just going to have so many questions and I encourage you to write down to bookmark the pages that we don't understand to write down the passage that we have questions to and we will come back to revisit them in a later time but for this year let's just get a very high level picture what the gospel looks like from a very high level okay and we're gonna do this together the gospel the journey doesn't stop here what we do this year is only a beginning of our, of our journey in um, of a gospel on every page we read it together we ask questions together we admit that we don't understanding and we don't understand everything together but we come back and we revisit those questions that we have in a later time that's the goal for um, for us this year and um, I don't know how much of uh, Leviticus makes sense <clears throat> after today maybe not the whole lot I'm sure there's still a lot of questions and I don't know if it uh, injects a sense of awe as we read through the scripture together maybe not but I, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the fact that when I'm preaching today I'm a fallible messenger I'm a sinner who need God who need Jesus to die for me but I would implore you guys I would encourage and hopefully keep you guys accountable in this journey together as we find the connection between the gospel between the Bible and our life and uh, as we journey <clears throat> we'll be in awe of God's presence together let's pray 
Father God, we we confess before you our sin as a nation, as a community, Lord. We need you to be our king, to be our high priest. We need you to cleanse us. We need you to make us holy. We need you to restore our fellowship with you. Father, um, we surrender our selfishness to you. Sometimes, even as a church, we need your redemption. Sometimes we make Christianity about us, whereas Christianity is about Christ. And Father, today we come before you, just as on the Day of Atonement, knowing there's nothing we can do to gain salvation. We can only sit and watch the ministry of Jesus, the life of Jesus unfolding before us. Things that happened 2,000 years ago has a deep and profound impact on the events that are being revealed today. Lord, we're just in awe. We're just so humbled and so grateful and so confused about your love and your grace and why you went through such length, such trouble to save the sinners of the earth. But God, we just pray for one another, pray for this nation, pray for this community before you. There's nothing we can do. We can only come before you in faith. And we come before you with our whole being. And we ask that we can even grasp the idea of loving you with our mind, soul, body, and spirit. And we pray in your Holy Son's name. Amen. Thank you, Dean, for um, helping us try to make some...